Good morning and welcome to the Truth About Local Government podcast. Local government is a pillar of our community. We all contribute financially and rely on these regional organisations for a multitude of services. However, sometimes as a member of the public, it can be difficult to understand what challenges they are facing, the solutions they're implementing, and fundamentally how that affects our day-to-day lives. The purpose of this podcast is to shine a light on topics and issues that are prevalent in local authorities across the UK at the present time, and hopefully by shining a light on the problems that local authorities are facing, the solutions they're implementing, we can drive a greater level of engagement with local authorities and the communities that they serve. My name is Matt Masters. I work with local authorities across the UK, providing interim resourcing solutions for both projects and vacancies. And I've been fortunate to have been doing that for the past decade. I am passionate about local government, the work they complete, and the benefit a well-run council can have on the community it creates and serves. Fundamentally, it is my belief that understanding what your local authority is doing against the tide of challenges is something everyone should have easy access to. It is for everyone, not just political activists. I'm really excited today because we've, we are we have been. Uh, we are, we've got the pleasure of sitting down with Steve Kaplan, the current Interim Director of Property at Pembrokeshire Council. I've known Steve for a number of years. He's one of the most talented, capable and respected property leaders in the UK, having led property functions at Derby City Council, Chesterfield, Shropshire and Bracknell, to name a few. But before joining local government, Steve had an illustrious career in the private sector where he was Director of Client Side and Consultancy Businesses. Steve and I felt that it be he could offer a really insightful and balanced view to the challenges affecting local government property functions at present. So, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you very much for that warm uh, welcome. Perhaps I could just very briefly say I'm not actually director of property at Pembrokeshire County Council. They don't have that post. The post I'm currently fulfilling is interim chief property officer. Just wouldn't want to misrepresent my my current posting. Thank you very much. No, absolutely. I mean, an example of your modesty. Um, <laughs> but um, but no, thank you very much for coming on. I guess my first question, Steve, is what do you think the biggest challenges currently facing property departments in local authorities, local authorities is? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's one I've actually witnessed in many um, councils over the past decade. I, I would say there are two principal challenges facing councils on their property estate at the moment. The first is resourcing in terms of human support to deliver what is required to support property assets. Property assets are, of course, really uh, a long game and they are intensive in terms of their maintenance repairs and and using them to deliver frontline services and the second is is the the common problem of financial budget constraints and councils um, have to look at their budgets in a very focused way in terms of what is a revenue expenditure and what is a capital expenditure. A lot of the private sector are not too familiar with the separation of how those budgets are used and the availability of resourcing uh, to deliver those outcomes. So it, it's about money and people, um, two of the, the old pillars, I guess. Hey, it's really interesting. I mean, we are in a really challenging situation, aren't we, whereby... You know, councils are being asked to do more for the community with less funding, um, and I guess that's where property is quite a 
it's kind of not a unique but quite a niche in local government in that it does generate revenue for the council um if it's run properly and i guess that kind of leads me to my next question is kind of do you think at the moment kind of post-covid with all the financial pressures that and i'm not talking specifically about pembrokeshire but the broader local authority kind of view that property is uh, an asset or is it a liability at the moment well i would say it is both um and that's not avoiding the question i i was uh, taught by a senior director many years ago that councils fundamentally have three weapons in their armory to deliver their services those are cash people and property and very few authorities have any other resources to deliver those services and we are about delivering those services so in not focusing on our people cash and property i think tricks are missed so in order to to gauge whether the property is an asset or a liability it depends on how much it is supporting those frontline services uh, and then we have to look at which services are discretionary and which are mandatory or statutory so leisure services are not generally statutory but of course a lot of the authorities have leisure centers and, and, and golf courses and all sorts of other facilities many of which have cost a lot of money over the uh, past year or two, particularly with the energy costs. But I, I do believe property is, a, by and large, an asset for councils if it can support the delivery of frontline services, children's homes, family centres, uh, and all those frontline uh, essential services. Although, of course, it depends on what tier of authority you're at as well. No, I think it's, it's, I completely agree with what you said there. I, I guess it's... Uh, well, to, to people like you and I who talk about property every day in local authorities, but to people at home who, you know, um, aren't having that conversation regularly and haven't got that exposure, can you just explain to us how a council goes about making a decision as to whether or not to invest in property? Just in light of the fact that, you know, there's been some quite, I won't name specific councils, uh, and before I say this as well, I appreciate that the councils only started to invest in properties maybe more enthusiastically when they were encouraged to by central government because they knew they were going to receive reduced funding, but there were going to be additional needs. But there have been some examples where the councils have simply got it wrong. Um, and, and those properties have kind of gone from being what should have been a, a way to prop up um, kind of the funding gap. Um, and then it has ended up creating quite large, um, large uh, kind of liabilities and, and debt. So how do, as a property leader, you know, how do you engage with the politicians? What's the, the process that, you know, the officers go through to decide where to invest and, um, you know, whether or not to buy, essentially? Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure, Matt, we could do an entire podcast on this very subject itself. And we will. Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry, go back to this. No, no, I, I, I would very much welcome this. Um, I think the, the rules of the game have changed substantially. So what we are seeing across various sectors which are taken down various councils and, and it's been largely attributed to their property um, investments or foray in that market. Uh, we've seen the troubles at the likes of Croydon, Thurrock and Slough recently. Um, many have attributed this to property um, investments. I'm not saying it is, but that, that's what's been um, speculated in the market. 
I personally, at a, a former council, very much on the instructions of the chief executive and the, the cabinet or executive, um, chose to create a commercial property investment strategy. Um, and the, the council was very, very clear on what their ambitions, expectations and requirements were. And so I was tasked with writing a, a strategy. We then brought in external agents who had done it for another authority to, to workshop with the members, to agree what the level of risk and appetite was. And we created the strategy. It was endorsed by the cabinet. A budget was created. And then we went into the market. And, and we're talking about investment for income here, not investment for general stock, for HRA, housing, and so forth. I, I'm talking very specifically about buying properties uh, for income, not even for regeneration. So that council um, set a budget. They agreed what their targets were. We set parameters. We created various matrix. We went into the market and we bought um six properties I, I recall all of which have performed extraordinarily well they haven't missed a single payment the income was all guaranteed for a minimum 10 years and longer in many cases almost every single one had uh, pre-built increases um and were absolutely the best stock you could possibly buy uh, and was done very very carefully uh, there were many we walked away from, there were many we didn't bid on, there were many we refused to compete with other authorities because we were in the public sector and it didn't make sense to do that. And so we created the strategy and delivered on it. Now there have been other authorities I've watched and, and looked at and haven't had a clue as to what their strategy was or, or their mix and, you know, and typically there are some of the ones that have come unstuck. There is a different strategy, and that's buying properties for regeneration and economic development and supporting jobs and so forth. And that's also important, but very specifically in terms of income investment, that has now fundamentally been blocked by SIPFA and also the potential borrowing uh, rules and regulations. So buying for income is, is not really allowed or permissible. And also they tightened up buying outside borough boundaries. And also, of course, the market has changed. You know, when we were borrowing money, we were borrowing at a 40-year uh, income at around about 2% interest. Um, now, obviously, you can't get anywhere near that. And that way, the returns aren't really there either. It's, it sounds as if things have got very challenging. But, I mean, again, I, I'm not going to name councils, but, you know, sometimes you look at it and you go, you hope that a few councils that maybe just na their naivety hasn't ruined it for the for the many who, uh, like the great work that you've done previously, you know, has supported councils' financial health and vitality moving forward. So I guess that leads me to my next question, but do you feel that the approach, because of those changes, but because of COVID, has changed the way in which councils are approaching their property strategy? Um, I think COVID is... is been very interesting obviously and, and devastating for many people of course uh, and we and it's changed the way we're working i think there is uh, you know there's far more hybrid working uh, I, I, again this is another interesting topic you know back to the office or, or remote working uh, debate is, is rife across many of the councils uh, and and in fact the whole country isn't it um 
and that, that's probably a podcast in itself as well. In, in terms of its changes, there were there were a lot of difficulties, particularly uh, with rent collection and changes in the law there and pursuing tenants. Um, I think leases have become even more flexible and, and tenants are, are building in uh, turnover and, and more, more uh, critical event um, possibilities to, to step out or suspend rent. So we've seen those kind of things. In, in terms of investment, obviously, um, office investment is, is looked at very carefully. I've seen deals um, being uh, reneged on or, or walked away from or changed, even though they've been agreed uh, but not completed because of the impact of COVID and everyone's waiting to see what happens. I think where we're at now is, you know, we're now what, a couple of years since the last lockdown and I think things are more settled, um, but it's mainly working practices that have now changed. Interesting. That's really interesting. And I guess at the moment then, in the current kind of landscape as to where we sit, what would you say are the opportunities that local authorities have in terms of their their property portfolios? You know, where do you see the opportunities? I think councils um, still have vast amounts of stock. Um, in fact, every council I think I've been involved in has probably had between... 800 and over a billion pounds of property. Um, although a lot of those figures are hiding things like uh, the value of schools because they're valued not obviously on an open market basis uh, and therefore those figures are, are kind of often inflated in, in terms of what the market value would be. I think the opportunities councils still have are to use a lot of their assets for community benefits. So we have uh, a big program of community asset transfers coming forward where um, small um, service-led stock can actually be transferred to public bodies to run more efficiently. So typically uh, things might be old community uh, rooms, it might be public conveniences and things like that, which really aren't in the best interest of larger councils to be running and providing because they're very intensive in terms of capital revenue and, and staff. But actually local councils, parish councils, town councils uh, are well placed to run these kinds of facilities and things like allotments have become very popular over the last few years as a direct result of COVID actually. So linking back to your former question, allotments are incredibly popular, uh, I see, with long, long waiting lists. Um, so it's about using those assets uh, for community benefits as much as possible. The, the Localism Act did give councils abilities to invest for income, but subsequent legislation has, uh, and guidelines have, have curtailed that as well as the interest rates, which is a shame because councils have so little ability um, to be adequately funded. That was one area where if they did it correctly, they could drive fresh income. That, that council I referred to earlier, I believe, are currently enjoying the benefit of between five and six million pounds a year of completely free, uh, as in unencumbered, income after interest, after repayment capitalizations, um, which is income they could never have generated otherwise through council tax increases or other means. So it's a shame that that 
avenue has been closed and now they have to focus on the assets linked to service delivery. In terms of um, your personal journey, Steve, because one of the things that I'm constantly talking about is the difficulty that councils have in securing good talent. Um, when I say good talent, I don't just, you know, I'm not, not for one second indicating that there isn't the talent in the public sector, but it's very difficult to compete sometimes with, this, with the salaries on the private sector side. You know, why did you make the transition to work in local government, having had such a successful private sector career? Interesting question, one I'm often asked about from my, my golfing chums and people I know from university and, and, and around, you know, what are you doing in the public sector? Um, and it, it was really a set of circumstances and events that led me into it. So I, I unfortunately was made redundant from a, a large multinational and a, a job came up through an agency for an interim uh, post in a council very close to where I live. And the council uh, needed, uh, they had just become a unitary council, so that's a, a basically an upper tier council responsible for all services, very large council, and they typically sold one to two million pounds of property a year, and they decided they need to sell 10 million pounds a year, and they, they hadn't really got um, the skills or experience. So they brought me in for six months to do that. And in fact, we sold over 11 million pounds in the first year, uh, and the team turned around and asked me to manage them for a period of time. Then a job came up as a director in another council, and uh, my number two kind of kept saying, why haven't you applied for that? So I did, and, it, uh, and, I, and I obviously got the position, well, not obviously, but, but I did get the position, and, and it was incredibly enlightening and refreshing in that that particular council had a very strong chief executive, a very strong um, political steer, a strong senior leadership team with a very clear vision to to deliver and can do. And that included the regeneration of an entire town centre, totally demolished, totally rebuilt, uh, multi-award winning, uh, and even the Queen came and visited uh, about a year after it, it was built. So I was totally surprised by both those two councils, A, at the staff commitment, the staff professionalism, the staff friendship, and the can-do attitude. I would say that is not always prevalent, and I have seen other councils that uh, are more stereotypical. So I've been really surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised, that there are very good councils very good people, very committed to public service, uh, and very professional. The challenge is, as you rightly said, the salaries are, in particularly for recently qualified or even several year qualified surveyors, are, are incredibly far off the market. Uh, councils have to procure in sort of this equal pay way. So they look at a qualified surveyor, a qualified lawyer, a qualified accountant, simply align to somebody that has no professional qualifications, but on their matrix, they say they are an equal job. But in the open market, that, that simply isn't the case. And so they're very much hamstrung by um, the way they have to grade jobs. Uh, that's my personal view and experience, and I've seen it many times. I've even seen members in employment committees say, this is completely nuts. 
you're comparing this job with this job because you think that's comparison. If you went to the market, there'd be £20,000 difference between those two posts. But the, the, the equality process that they do to evaluate, job evaluation they call it, um, comes out with different formulas and, and it, it seems to be in a parallel universe sometimes. So there's the challenge. It's about actually understanding what it means to employ a, a qualified lawyer, a qualified accountant, qualified surveyor uh, in the open market as opposed to the public sector. No, I absolutely agree. And I, I speak to so many talented people in the, in the public sector that do it also because, you know, there's an opportunity. There's obviously the variety of work, the size of portfolio, but there's that altruistic nature that what you do in property services affects the lives of, of children. Uh, you know, when, you know. Absolutely. I, I think it, it would be wrong just to assume it's all about money. So I apologise if people think, oh, this guy's just talking about money um, because the reward of supporting services is enormous. It really is knowing you're making a difference, you're, you're supporting vulnerable the most vulnerable people and that is at the heart of what we do but the councils do have um, other benefits they have still the most generous pensions probably available anywhere you know the, 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 the defined benefits um, they're, they're no longer a final salary that's a myth uh, they're, they're generally called career averages or whole of career or something similar but they're still far more generous than you'd get in any um private sector uh, and the support network is also very good in terms of flexible working sick support uh, and the well-being support it are very very high um, so there, there are plenty of other reasons aside from just pure cash why why surveyors should look at it um, and I've been lucky in some of the locations have also been extraordinarily decent and amazing places to work. But I guess, you know, just being candid is that we're in a cost of living crisis. So obviously the first thing people think about after flexibility is, is that pay? Um, you know, so it, it is, you know. It is. You know, that, that's true. And people look at the headline salary and they just take that. And we, we've lost people recently because of the illusion, I think, of getting that higher salary. But what they're forgetting is their pension may be only 3 or 4% contribution in their new private sector. But generally speaking, uh, the, the public sector having to pay around about 20 to 25% uh, into that defined benefit scheme. And particularly if you're older and thinking about retiring pre, say, 67, then then it counts for a lot. And people should, should perhaps think about the whole of life career um, scenario, not just um, cash now. And particularly, obviously, the tax burden has increased very much as well. You know, earning over six figures for the top people is, is a lot of money, absolutely. But actually, the, the tax burden burden becomes much higher as well uh, and uh, there are plenty of people I think that would realise that earning less is more rewarding both in terms of um, uh, work-life balance and actually um, uh, the whole the whole gambit. Well Steve honestly I, I can only appreciate and say thank you so much for coming on to the, the, the podcast it's been a, a really insightful and I hope everyone at home has enjoyed listening to that um, so thank you very much Steve. I uh, very much appreciate the opportunity and, and hope all the listeners um, can, can consider and debate as well. So thanks, Matt, very much. Looking forward to working with you in the future, of course. If you enjoyed this episode, please like the podcast and feel free to share. 
add me on LinkedIn. We're always happy to open up the topics to new areas that our listeners want to see explored. But from myself and Steve, it's goodbye. So thank you very much for listening.